And then last week we came to the tough bit. Where Peter starts speaking about false teachers. You see, Peter's writing to a church where there are people claiming to be Christians who, instead of turning people's eyes to Jesus, are instead turning them away from Jesus, saying, live for pleasure now. In other words, they're saying, don't desire God because the things of this earth are more immediate and they are just as good, if not better. In fact, this is probably all you get because we don't think Jesus is coming back. And Peter's written to them and said, no, Jesus is coming back. And so, and so live out of that. Add to your trust in Him. Uh, the life of Jesus. So goodness, uh, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, love for others. Do this because Jesus is coming back and how we live now matters. And, and, and really don't settle for second best when there is Jesus. Nothing can compare to our God, so why settle? And he's gone and, and last week he started speaking to us about who these teachers are and really what they are like. And, and maybe we'll just uh, we'll keep on reading quickly and we'll, we'll see exactly what he says. I'm going to read to you from the NIV translation today because I, I, I think it's, it does a little bit of a better job uh, than the New Living Translation in this instance. There were also false prophets. So he, he said previously, um, uh, we, he told us about his experience of seeing Jesus uh, in all of his glory on the mountain of transfiguration. And, and he says, look, this is one of the reasons that I just know Jesus is coming back because I've seen him for who he really is. And we've got the prophets who spoke for God. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God didn't spare angels when they sinned, but he sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he didn't spare the ancient world of uh, when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued a lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless uh, for that righteous man living among them day by day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. And this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh and who despise authority, bold and arrogant. They are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Uh, dot, dot, dot. And we'll, we'll carry on next week from the second half of, of verse 10 there. That's an interesting passage, isn't it? I told you last week as a preacher, this is one of those passages you go, oh, I so don't want to be that man. And I hope for the rest of us, we also go, oh, I so hope we aren't that person. Let me just bring this up. Will God actually judge? See, last week, 
Peter left off and said, guys, those who stand against God, God will judge. They will be condemned. In fact, literally, verse 3 finishes with, with their condemnation has not been sleeping. God is judging them. And if you think about it, today our world is not that dissimilar from the position of the church in Peter's day. Peter said back then there will be false teachers among you. And I'm, I'm afraid to say uh, it's true today still. There are false teachers in the church. People who reject Jesus. Who instead of trying to, to match their lives up with what they believe, change what they believe to match their lives. Remember that sanctification is, change, is, is the gradual change of, of how we live to match what we believe. These teachers are going, no, change what you believe to match how you live. And by the way, live to maximize your pleasure now because this life is all you get. And by the way, Jesus isn't coming back. False teachers, we saw last week, are often popular. They're often very successful. They have huge crowds following them. I could name a few, but you can probably think of a few yourself. Does God see? Peter says God's going to judge them, but they just keep on going better and better, don't they? Their churches just keep growing. People keep flocking to them. Does God even care? Peter says God does see. God does care. He's not just standing silent. He's already judging and he will judge. Jesus defeated all sin and evil on the cross when he died and rose again. He now stands in all of his glory, the glory that Peter glimpsed on the Mount of Transfiguration. And one day on the day of the Lord, that's what we sing about, that's our theme song, we belong to the day, the day when Jesus comes as the judge and as the Savior. And, and the question is, has got to be, well, how do we know that? How do we know that Jesus will come and judge? Because, to be quite frank, if Jesus isn't coming to judge, then you and I should be living out as much as we can. You can have your cake and eat it too. If there isn't somebody to say to you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And by the way, let me just say, God's not out as a nasty one. No cake! God actually wants what's best for us. And what's best for us is to know Him and to follow Him. And what these false teachers are doing is saying, settle for second best. Have this beautiful cake. Isn't it amazing? It's, it's like, oh, I, I love ice. For me, the best, one of the best cakes is a Christmas cake with that, what's that icing I put over Christmas? Marzipan. That is amazing. I hate the cake. I don't hate it, but, I don't hate it, but, but, I'll eat the icing and leave the cake. And, and that's a little bit like what the false teachers do. They, they say, look at this amazing cake. And you eat and you go, wow, this is amazing. But inside it's like rotten fruit. <laughs> Except theirs really is rotten. How do we know that God will return and will judge those who say, we want second best. We don't want you, God. Well, we know this because God has a track record. He has a track record that includes even judging angels. Angels are powerful spiritual creatures that we don't know much about. We know that they serve God. We know that they are created beings. But 
But if they rebel against God, even they are judged. Peter doesn't give much detail about what he's talking about here when he speaks of God having judged the angels. Um, we're not sure exactly where it's recorded in the Bible. It might not even be in the Old Testament. It might be in one of the intertestamental stuff. It might be, I don't know what he's referring to. Some say, oh, it's Genesis chapter 6 where the sons of God married the daughters of men and they had kids. But oh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 that when, we, when he comes, we will, uh, we will be like him, we will be made like him, and we will not be given in marriage or be married. Uh, it kind of implies uh, angels don't have kids, so, so I'm not sure if it's Genesis 6. Others say maybe it's Isaiah 14 where Isaiah sees, How art thou fallen, morning star? Uh, perhaps, perhaps it's John's, well, I, I think this is, this is where I lean to. John in Revelation sees Satan and his hordes being thrown out. And perhaps it's also Jesus when he sent out his disciples and they return and they tell him of. Of, of how people have responded to the message, he says, I saw Satan fall. I think this is what we're talking about here. Uh, details, when this happened in history, I don't know. Remember, God's eternal. We're not. Uh, time is wiggly, wiggly woggly uh, from eternity's perspective. But whenever it happened, it is certain that Satan had already fallen by the fall of humanity. Because Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve and, and said exactly to them, guys, why don't you desire this more than God? And they did, and they ate, and, and they despised God. At that stage already we read of Satan being judged. Satan and his cronies, the fallen angels, despise God and despise his purposes and despise us. So, regardless of when this happened, Peter's point is that these majestic, powerful beings, you know, whenever you read of an angel in the Bible, the first reaction is one of... Almost, don't kill me, kind of thing. For the most part, that's how people react, with fear and awe, because these are majestic creatures. But Peter's point is that they sinned, they rebelled against God, and they are judged by God. Says Peter, they have been found guilty, they are thrown into hell, uh, thrown into Tartarus, thrown into this place. And it's like, if, if, in our court system at, the moment, system at the moment, they have been put into remand and are awaiting the day of sentencing. This isn't a permanent jail cell they're in. This is remand where they're in at the moment, waiting for the day when they will be sentenced. And that day is the day when Jesus returns. But they are currently there. They are in chains, according to some translations, according to Jude's version of this passage. And, and even from there, in that remand, they have an influence. And they do what they can to attack God, to attack His people. They, they are powerful on earth. They are perhaps what Paul calls the rulers and authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's, that's Paul describing them in Ephesians chapter 6. These are them, these are them in remand. Imagine them if they were not in jail. And yet they are conquered. 
and defeated by Jesus through his death and resurrection. Colossians 2, Paul writes that they, uh, that Jesus disarmed them and made a public example of them, a spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them through the cross, in his cross, through what he did there. They exist and are opposed to God's people, but But what Peter writes to us and says, these are those who rebelled against God and they are under judgment. They are defeated. And just as an aside, if we are Christians, if Jesus lives in us by his spirit, then greater is he that lives in us than he that is in the world. But Peter's point is not to tell us, hey, uh, fallen angels, demons exist. His point is not to tell us they are, they are still antagonistic against God and His people. His point is to tell us even the most majestic of creatures, and they are creatures, even the most majestic of creatures, if they rebel against God, God doesn't sit back and go, oh, oh, oh. You know, how sometimes when, when one country goes to war and attacks in a neighboring country and, and the countries who are supposed to be allied to them, instead of going and, and defeating the enemy, they just go, oh, let's wait and see what happens. God's not like that. God says, no, if you stand against me, you've chosen your own fate. God has a track record. of judging even angels and a track record of judging human sin but also protecting. In Genesis chapter 6 there's a story there of God looking at the earth and seeing that it is corrupt and full of violence. He is sorry that he made humanity. Verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6 God says notes that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. Isn't that wonderful that Jesus lives in us and that our thoughts are not only evil all the time? I think that's, a, that's, that's a evidence that God is in us, that all our thoughts are not evil all the time. It's evidence of God's goodness. You see, God made us to be like him. God made us to be loving and holy and, and, and good. But sin come and, and came and made it otherwise. And, and so God, who made us and who by rights is our king, says, well, if you rebel against me, I cannot stand sin. God is holy. God is light, sin is darkness. You put light and darkness together, the darkness is undone. And so God shows his anger at human sin by wiping out the known world with a flood. And if God didn't spare those who rejected him then, says Peter in effect, why would he start now? He's got a track record of judging sin. But, says Peter, But God also protects his own. 
Out of all the people of the time, Genesis says to us, Noah was blameless. He walked faithfully with God. And so, although God wiped out all of humanity, He protected Noah just as He protects us. And, and I think it's important to say that Noah couldn't protect himself. I remember as a child being thrown into a swimming pool so that I could learn how to swim. I can kind of float on my back for maybe five seconds before I splutter. Can you imagine floating for like days going, <gasps> doggy paddle until the water goes... No way Noah could save himself. No way Noah could even know that there would be a flood. Noah couldn't save himself from the evil world. By all rights, God could have wiped him out along with the rest of them because Noah wasn't perfect. And yet, he followed after God. He, he desired God. And when God said to him, Noah, I'm going to do this, build a boat, Noah trusted that God was the righteous judge. And Noah put his trust into practice. It wasn't just a, yeah, I believe God will judge. Yeah, God will judge one day. One day. No, Noah said, I believe God will judge and I'm going to live on the basis of that. By faith, says Hebrews 11, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear he built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Says Peter, he preached righteousness, at least in the building of the ark, for, for so many years in a desert. Saying to people, by his very actions, with every hammer blow, God wants us to follow him. And you know what? I am willing to bet that anyone who had listened to Noah and gone on the ark with him, God wouldn't have kicked them off. How do I know that? Because there were seven others who got on the ark with him. Noah was a righteous man, blameless before God, following after God's footsteps, and yet his wife got on the boat with him, his son got on the boat with him, his, son, his other son, his third son, their wives. By the way, don't watch the Noah movie. Um, this is wrong on so many points. Uh, and one of them is, there's seven people on that boat. We're not told anything about how good and, and how, how his sons walked in the ways of the Lord. We're just told that they got on the boat. Noah trusted God and his family trusted Noah. When Noah said to them, God is the judge. If you want to live, follow him. He preached righteousness, says Peter. Only his family listened and were saved. The problem is the flood didn't wipe out the sinful bent in human heart. Genesis 8, just a few chapters after we're told about the flood, we're told God says... Exactly that. They're still sinful. Like us righteous Abraham. Abraham? Wow, that's not right. Like us righteous Noah and his family were sinners, but they trusted God and walked with God faithfully. They trusted God and they were saved by God. Noah's life was oriented around God. Was it perfect? No. One of the first things Noah does after... He gets off the boat, plants a vineyard, and gets blind drunk. We're not talking as a few drinks too many, we're talking blind, blind, blind drunk. Was he perfect? No. 
But God saved him and protected him because he desired God. Because he walked faithfully following God. What we need is a life defined by God. We need to be born again. We need to be delivered from the corruption of the world, says Peter, caused by sinful human desires. You see, what caused the problem in those days is the same thing that causes the problem after the flood and causes the problem today. It's, it's sinful human desires. In other words, it's desiring things other than God more than God. God has a track record of judging and rescuing. The story in Genesis goes on and we, we hear about Abraham and his nephew Lot uh, and they get too numerous and eventually their herdsmen are fighting and Abraham and Lot get together and Abraham says, right, Lot, you choose where you want to go. And Lot looks out and sees the valley, the Jordan Valley and he says, wow, that place is beautiful and, and the text says that it was like the Garden of Eden, it was like the land of Egypt, it was incredible and Lot says, I'll have that place. And so Lot goes off and he, he settles, uh, settles in the town of Sodom. Uh, when he goes there already, Genesis 39 tells us that, that this area was known as a place of wickedness and sinning against God. But it's a great place. It's, it's got, I mean, economically that is the place you want to be. Socially probably it's the place you want to be. And like Peter, uh, his false teachers that he was confronting we're also encouraging lawlessness and filthy lives. Jude 7 explicitly says that the people in Sodom uh, and Gomorrah gave themselves to sexual immorality and perversion. Uh, God hates sin and it is only right for Him to punish it. And by the way, God's not lashing out. It's quite a few chapters, quite a while, that God doesn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I think the miracle is that God doesn't destroy them in chapter 13. They have chance to repent. In fact, there is a righteous man moves into town. They could have, they could have come to, to know God. They could have realized, wow, this isn't right what we're doing. And God would have spared them just as He spared Noah. But, but eventually God comes and says... They are steadfast in their rebellion against me. Their sin is so high, I'm going to wipe them out. And he does. And if you read through the Bible, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, they all speak about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of God's anger against sin. And Jesus says it's going to be better for them on the day of judgment than for those towns that heard the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom and rejected it. They hadn't heard the good news of God's offer of life through Jesus. They, they, they knew that those who follow God are saved, but they hadn't heard why that we hear through Jesus. And just by the way, it's very easy to jump and say, oh, you know, Obviously, their sin was worse than all other sins, and you know, homosexuality and perversion and uh, sexual immorality. And yeah. yeah, that was their sin. And Peter 
highlights that a bit later because he's, he's dealing with false teachers that are living exactly that same sort of life. That's where verse 10 comes in. But, but the point is that Peter's not focused on what their sin is so much as on the fact that they sinned and God has a track record of judging sin. Regardless of what that is. Their sin is that they desired these things more than they desired God. They desired this world more than they desired God. We can desire money more than we can desire God. We can desire power more than we desire God. We can desire sexual things more than we desire God. We can desire anything more than we desire God. That's the problem. And God has a track record of when we desire things other than Himself. Because He is the best. And because if we desire other than Him, we we are actually desiring less than the best and we are going against what is true and good and right. We are actually saying, God, You are not ultimate. And God who is ultimate has every right to say, well, actually I am. I love You. I want the best for You. but, But if You keep telling me to get lost, if You keep... Daring me, I am ultimate. But just as God protected Noah, so God also rescued Lot. Peter calls Lot righteous three times in in these verses. But he wasn't exactly the perfect man of God. When the two... uh, Angels were there in Lot's house. The men of the town came and said, bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Lot, that righteous man of God, goes out and says, oh no, what a terrible thing. Look, I have two daughters here. By the way, engaged to be married to two of you guys somewhere. Why don't I send them out instead? What? What a righteous man. I think Lot had the idea that that there are levels of sin, which isn't how God works. Fortunately, um, Lot's plan didn't go into effect. How can Peter say Lot was righteous? It's not saying Lot was perfect. But Peter does note that Lot was tormented within himself over his community. He was distressed by what he saw and heard. He knew that this isn't God's intent for humanity. That's what made him righteous in that he desired God's best. He wasn't content with second best. He knew that God is awesome and majestic and and God's best is what we need to thrive as humans. At the same time, there was much about the area that he found attractive. If you read the story in Genesis chapter 19, it's quite funny. He's told to go. uh, They don't want to come. The angels eventually say, come, go, 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 go now. Come on, go. And I was like, eventually, it's almost like the angels have to grab his arm and yank him out of the city. There was a lot there that was attractive and good. It was a place of economic prosperity. It was a place of culture and sophistication. There is a lot good in this evil world. A lot that we find attractive. And so we excuse the evil for the good. 
perhaps why his wife, as they were fleeing, turned around to go, oh, surely God wouldn't. Oh. And she died and was turned to a pillar of salt. Lot wasn't perfect, but he was righteous because he lived with God as the cornerstone of his life. God didn't rescue him because he was perfect, but because he followed God. We who have the message of God's Son, who offers rescue to us, we have a much firmer, more solid reason to trust God. Yes, there is much good in this world, but do you know something that that perhaps we don't realize often is that when Jesus comes into his own, the treasures of the nations are brought into his kingdom. God isn't just going to return one day, Jesus, and wipe everything out and we're going to be there going, oh, you know, I really like the Xbox and now it's gone. Or, oh, you know, I really enjoyed watching sunsets and, and now I've got to settle for clouds. Or, you know, I, I love that statue of the crab basket on Mandurah Road. It made my day every day I drove past it. <laughs> the best of the nations will be in the kingdom. Maybe not the exact statues, but, but the treasures, all these good things that we, we tend to go, oh, surely God, you can just not destroy because this is nice. No, God says, if you have me, you have the best. We know that because Jesus told us that. We are in a much greater place than Lot. Also, I think what Lot teaches us is that it is a gift from God to be distressed and tormented by sin. To realize that this isn't right. Because when sin no longer shocks us, It's an easy step to tolerate it and an easy step to embrace it. God has a track record. Oh, you can do without that, can't you? God has a track record. Verses 4 to 10 is one long sentence. It's one if followed by a then. If God has judged, and look, he has, and he's rescued, then he knows how to and he will judge and rescue. Peter's first conclusion on a passage of, which started out with, how do you know God will judge? Peter's first thing is not, wow, God has a track record of of judging. Peter's first thing is, wow, God's got a track record of saving. Isn't that amazing? How do we know God judges? Well, we know God saves. That's the first great thing. God saves. The hope of the church is that God will rescue us from trial through Jesus. And the word trial there, uh, if you read in your Bible, it it, it can refer to temptation, uh, the sin within, or it can refer to to, to trials, to external experiences and difficulties. That's probably about every experience that, that we face, every challenge to the faith that we face. 
Boy, that's difficult to say, isn't it? Every challenge to the faith that we face. God knows how to rescue us from trial. God, God's people, you and I, are not immune from trial. They are part of living in an evil world. Trials can bring physical harm, emotional stress, economic loss, death. Look around the church this morning and I know many of us have gone through trials. In fact, I'm sure all of us have gone through trials. Trials are an expected part of this life. And as the examples Peter has shown us show, they are an expected part of life even for those who desire God above everything else because we live in a broken world. But God is our refuge and our rescuer. I love this about Peter. He's talking about false teachers, but actually his point is that God rescues us. And I love that also because it's not about us, it's about God rescuing us. God knows how to rescue those who desire him, the righteous. And we are righteous because we trust Jesus. But God also knows how to hold the unrighteous for judgment. And on the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes, all those who refuse Jesus will die for all eternity. James says this in chapter 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. The judgment of God, says Peter, is coming. He's got a track record of that. And in fact, it's already in effect. Read Romans 1 at some stage and you'll see how God gives us over to what we desire. And in fact, when we desire less than God, we end up getting less than God. If we desire God, we end up getting God plus everything else. All these things will be added to you. If we desire less than God, we end up being less than we were meant to be. We endure its consequences, the consequences of our sin. God's judgment is certain and he won't let sin go unpunished. This is especially true of the false teachers, says Peter here in verse 10. Their lives just match so closely to the examples that is given, especially example two. They literally, what he, what he describes them as doing is going after flesh in a passionate longing for defilement. Rather than seeking to avoid sexual sin, these false teachers were going out of their way to satisfy it. They are slaves to their own evil desires. They, they, they embrace it with joy. And they despise all authority. Ha! Celestial beings, well maybe they are judged by God. God wouldn't dare judge me. Well, so what? Let me finish here. Because I see our time is well and truly up. Although God's judgment is inevitable, 
the Bible clearly says, Jesus clearly says, um, Luke chapter 17, as Anna Marie was reading to us, clearly says, Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Judgment is inevitable, but for humans, it is not inescapable. And this, by the way, is just, as an aside, this is an amazing thing. The angels don't have a saviour. Isn't that incredible? The angels don't have a saviour. You have made him, says the psalmist, a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with honour and glory. A psalm that speaks of Jesus, but that speaks of us. We are a little lower than the angels, but we get saved. God has made a way for us to be right with him. Jesus died to save us. If we trust him, he will save us. Even though people might think we're idiots, like they thought Noah an idiot. If we trust him, he will save us. We can't save ourselves from this present evil age. But, 1 Corinthians 10 says this, and this is a great verse. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. We have a way out. Jesus. And I always read that passage just as an aside and thought, a way out of temptation is getting away from temptation. But if you think about it, what, what we read there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, is that God provides a way out so that we can endure under it. So that we can keep living in this world until Jesus comes. Our way out is trusting Jesus. If we trust him, he will rescue us. And until his return, we are tasked, like Noah, like Lot, to being preachers of righteousness until it's too late. There is a lot in this world that is good. But it is an age allied against God, and God has a track record of judging sin. Fortunately, God also has a track record of rescuing, for which I am eternally grateful. While we were still sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. By his Spirit opened our eyes to realize that we need rescue. God has grabbed our hands. So often we're like Lot, hesitant. Hesitant to believe in practice as much as in theory that God will judge. Because there's so much. Surely God will overlook the evil because of the good. But God has grabbed our hands and says, You desire me, follow me. He is rescuing us, He will rescue us. Because God. As Paul says in Romans 3.26, justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The righteous will live by faith.
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in Jesus. For they will be filled. If you desire less than God, you will get less than God. And then you'll get God judging you. If you desire Jesus, however imperfectly, you will get him. Oh Father, may we desire you. May the things of earth, as the song says, grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. There are false teachers, Lord, and there are many who settle for desiring this. You are the judge. You are fierce. You are holy and you have the right to decide how we should live because you made us. You have the right to assert that you are the greatest good because you made us and because you are God. And yet you are beautiful. And yet, if we follow you, we live a life of abundance. We get to share your life. That's what you promised us. Oh Jesus, may we desire that and desire you above everything else. When temptation comes, when trials come, may we remind ourselves that you are a pearl beyond price, a treasure beyond counting. And for those, Father, who desire less than you and teach others to desire less than you, May they come to realize that really what they end up with might, might seem wise and seem good, but ultimately for eternity is a bad Thank you for what is good in this world, and thank you that, that you will redeem it. Thank you for resting.